Uh, we're in week four, I think it is, of a 31-week series called The Story. We've been following um, this book, which is a, a selection of scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. They call it an abridged version of the Bible, just to help us get a big picture of, what, of God's big picture, really, and, uh, and who he is and what that means for us. So the summary so far, we go all the way back to the beginning, the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, and I'll do this really quickly. God created the world that includes us, the humans, who were created in his image. That means we bear the image of God. That means we have value and we have purpose. His creation was perfect, as was our relationship with God. You know, sinless humans in relationship with our perfect sinless God. We broke that relationship when we brought sin into the world, and we've lived with the consequences ever since. Humans were banished from the garden, and God's desire was to redeem the world. And so as we continue to read, we're essentially reading God's redemption story from that point all the way through, and it continues to today. God chose Abraham and Sarah, and he made a covenant with them to start a new nation that would bless all nations. And we know that that, that means that eventually Jesus would come from this, this new nation of people. Abraham and Sarah gave birth to Isaac. Isaac gave birth to Jacob. Jacob gave birth to 12 sons who would be the patriarchs of Israel, of this new nation. And God used the difficult circumstances that Jacob's son Joseph went through to not only refine him to be a great leader, but to be in the right place at the right time and to have favor with Pharaoh. So when the famine hit, the family of Israel was able to move to Egypt to survive, essentially which is where we got up to. Last week, the family of Israel ended up in Egypt. Joseph and Pharaoh offered them protection. You know, there's a big, um, you know, they're united again. A big reunion happens. And the, the family of Israel begins to grow into a very large nation over the next three or four centuries. It kind of, it kind of looks like this. God, humans, God. God created a perfect world in relationship with us. We broke it. God is redeeming us. God is redeeming the world. If I was to put it into three words, God, human, God, kind of wraps up what's going on here. And so today we're in the first 10 chapters of Exodus, and we jump from uh, Joseph all the way through to Moses. And the time period of their stay in Egypt it, it does say in, in, um, in the Old Testament that they were there for about 400 years or more. But when you do the maths, it's kind of a little bit hazy. So, you know, there's a few reasons why people th think that Moses said it was about 430 years. But it's something between 300 and 400 years anyway. But what you need to know is that it was a long time. You know, three to 400 years is a long time, right? It's longer than... Well, it's a long time. <laughs> in that time... We go from when Pharaoh embraces Joseph's family of about 70 people when they arrive to hundreds of years later and, and you know, a few pharaohs down the line of Egyptian kings to this time now. And this new pharaoh doesn't know the story of Joseph so much. Doesn't know him, obviously, because we're a long time down the way. So here we are in Exodus chapter 1, starting at verse 6. And this is what, it, 
what it says. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all the generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. That means they had a lot of babies. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, labor and they built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. So that's the rough version of what, what happened over those hundreds of years. And, and I know the story of Moses is familiar to most of you and you've hopefully read it this week. Maybe you, read the, you watched the movie when you were younger uh, with, um, is it Charlton Heston played Moses? Has anyone, has anyone seen that movie? No one under the age of 40, I see. <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. There's a few of you here. And so you're somewhat familiar with it, hopefully, but again, I hope you read the chapter, uh, is it four or five? It is four. Thank you, Shelley. Chapter four this week, I hope you read it, because in it is some application for us today, and here's where I want to get to. So even though the new Pharaoh enslaves Israel, and, and, and he works them ruthlessly, the population just keeps exploding, and so Pharaoh makes this decision, and it's a really brutal one, all the... The newborn Hebrew boys are going to be thrown into the Nile River to curtail the, the population growth. Barbaric, I know. But this kind of, of evil, this kind of disregard for infants was actually not uncommon in these ancient cultures. There was many people groups that practiced child sacrifice as we would later find out. Anyway, during this time, Moses is born into a Levite family. And although his, his mother kind of is pretty good at hiding him for about three months, it becomes increasingly difficult. And so she does what she can to save her son. And, and I often wonder, I wonder what other mothers did as well, because I would imagine they all had a go at trying to save their children. That's what you would naturally do. So she puts him in this basket in the Nile River near where Pharaoh's daughter would come down to bathe. And she asks her daughter Miriam, to watch over her baby brother as he sits there floating in, in the Nile River. Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses in the river, obviously thinks that he's cute or something and compassionate, compassionately takes him in. And then Miriam pops up and asks, would you like a Hebrew mother or, or a Hebrew woman to nurse Moses? And she agrees. And so Moses ends up back with his mother for a while, probably till he's like two or something like that, until he goes to live with his adopted mother, which is Pharaoh's daughter. There's not much information about his childhood being raised as part of Egyptian royalty, but you would assume that he was educated in their ways and in their customs. But it seems at the same time he was staying connected to um, his Hebrew family and, and their culture as well. So then this happens in chapter 2 of Exodus from verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his people were and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. It's kind of nice to know he still saw them that way. And then looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and he hid him in the sand. And as a consequence, he has to flee Egypt because Pharaoh finds out and Pharaoh wants to kill him for 
his own killing that he did. So Moses end up, ends up in a, um, a land, a distant land called Midian. There he meets his wife, Zipporah, and they have a son. So Exodus 2.23 says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. So here's what I want us to remember. And this is, this is a sermon point that you've probably heard many times over the years, but it's just worth putting it out there again. God always remembers his promises. Because it's not like this situation for, for Moses and for Israel was a surprise to him. You know, hundreds of years earlier, actually, if you go back to Genesis chapter 15, here's what it says. The Lord said, know for certain that for 400 years to, to Abraham, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will come, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. So this was, this was already foretold, what was happening. You know, this wasn't a surprise to God. He's not surprised by the difficulties that we go through. And for all we know, as we learned last week, there's a plan unfolding that we don't always see, at least not at first. I've been saying it now for a long time. We often... We've got a hazy picture of our destination, but the, the journey is really hard to see. The point is that we don't forget his promises to us, and that's, that's what we hold on to. God's ways are not our ways, and this is the test of faith for us, the, the test of faith for us, as we, we trust God with his plan for us. Having said that, I did note two things from this passage. First, just because you're waiting on God to help, and you're trusting that he will, it doesn't mean you actually stop crying out to him. You know, God responds to their cry to him. In fact, verse 25 says that he was concerned about them because he loves us, because he's concerned for us. You know, he's not a tyrant. He, he may be refining us. He may be holding back something from us for good reason, but he hears our cry to him. He actually wants us to call out to him. There's an obvious link with the prayers of the Israelites and an alignment with God's timing and his willingness to act at this point. This is why we cry out to God today in the middle of our messed up world. We, we, you know, it's God have mercy, as we did this morning. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And through it, we hold on to that truth that God remembers what he's told us, what he's promised us today. Just like Joseph, just like Moses, he promises not to leave us. He promises to return. He promises an eternity with him. Even if the world is falling apart around us, those things hold us close to him. Anyway, the story moves on and God decides it's time to move on this promise to deliver them from captivity into the new land. But there is a problem. They're, of course, enslaved by what can only be described as a brutal dictator. And at this time, Egypt is fast becoming the powerhouse of the world. They have all the military and economic might that you would need to be the powerhouse. 
They worshipped a variety of gods. Israel are just these poor slaves. They pretty much have nothing. They have no control over their lives. There's no army. There's no weapons. They only have God. I think that's exactly where God wants them. Exactly where God wants us. Because it's going to take a miracle to get out of this. And so God chooses Moses to be the one to lead the nation out of bondage. You know, I love the burning bush moment. Are you guys with me on that? I love it. You know, when tending to his father-in-law's flock in a remote location, way away from Egypt, Moses encounters a bush. It's on fire and you're not burning up. Pretty cool. And at that moment, God speaks to Moses and he reveals his concern for the Israelites, which has been there all along. This is an important thing to remember. So Exodus chapter 3, verse 9 to 10. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. This is God speaking through this burning bush to Moses. The cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Remember what I just said? They're the powerhouse of the world at the time. The big economy... The cities they're building, the, the armies, the technology, the weapons, the chariots and the horses, all those things, that's them. It's just poor little slave Israelites that, they're up against, that is up against them. Imagine being told that's your job, to do that. And so when we read on, we, we read this uh, rather long discourse about how this will happen, including how God's going to demonstrate his power to force Pharaoh's hand, and also about how Moses is to explain the plan to the Hebrews. So he gives them all the instructions. But I noticed something about Moses. He's kind of a reluctant leader. In Exodus 3.11, it says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And then in chapter 4, verse 1, Moses answers, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? And then verse 10 of chapter 4, Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, and neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And then in verse 13, Moses says again, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. This is Moses, remember? He, he's, he's one of the greats that, that we think of anyway. Please send someone else, is what he's saying there. It turns out he's just a simple shepherd who's totally reluctant to be a leader. It turns out he's not actually eloquent or, or articulate, I should say. But he's still God's choice. You know, why would God do that? Why wouldn't God choose a naturally gifted leader? They've got to be, you know, you've got hundreds of thousands of Israelites. There's got to be the real confident ones that people always look to, you know, the ones that speak up all the time. That's the natural leader. Why didn't God go to them? The one who gets things done. I mean, Moses is trying to talk himself out of this job to lead Israel here. No doubt he saw the obstacles and the enormity of the job, but his main concern was 
I'm just not good enough to do this. And here's why I think God chooses Moses. And it's a quick shout out to, I think Mark was telling me during the week, he read it in in Numbers, that actually says this about him in Numbers chapter 12. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. I think that was what God was looking at. Now, I, I did think about this a little bit because we're pretty sure that Moses wrote numbers. And so he's kind of saying this about himself. And so I'm just thinking, well, does that make you humble? Am I humble if I say I'm the most humble? But anyway, it's inspired by God, so he had to put it in there. We're going to go with that, right? But point number two is that humility is God's highest selection criteria for leadership in, in his in his kingdom anyway. You know, it's the heart he's looking for first. If you're gifted and talented, that's really good. But if you're not humble, you may not be on God's radar yet to be a leader. In fact, the apostle Peter, in one of his letters, goes as far as saying, God, and he uses the word, opposes the proud. Here's what it says in in Peter chapter 5. All of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud and shows favour to the humble. He's probably quoting Proverbs, I think, or something like that there. Pretty strong language, though. It almost sounds like if you're a proud person and you're not humble, you might actually get opposition from God. Isn't that what it's kind of saying? Opposes? We see it time and time again when God chose David above his seemingly better qualified brothers. He said, it's because I was looking for the heart, the one that had the father's heart, the one that was after my heart. He was humble. We see examples of, of kings throughout Scripture whose pride and arrogance brought them down. In our own generation, we've seen you know, a string of pastors and Christian leaders over the years who seemingly had all the success in the world and they stumble and they fall because pride comes in. They lack humility. The church has to elevate humility above talent, starting with the leaders. It's true, you can achieve a lot and not be humble, but you're probably operating in your own strength and it tends to get to a point where you get stuck or it falls over. Inevitably, Prideful leaders harm people and bring the church and and sometimes the gospel into disrepute. So what makes a person humble? You know, it's someone who's not so concerned with their own status or desires above others anyway. Someone who has great concern for others. Often they prefer to see others go ahead of them. Someone who, who doesn't have to be right or get their way, or be the loudest voice, someone who accepts people and their faults and their weaknesses, someone who is not prone to be offended easily, someone who isn't always looking to be a victim. You know, just watching the news this week, you you see some of the the prideful bits in a certain leader in our world, don't you? And it was amazing to see how he was always the victim, even though at the same time he's attacking other people. Look, I just want to be honest. I'm over arrogant leaders. I'm over it. Even in the church, I've changed who I tend to listen to these days. 
I'd much rather sit and listen to a humble leader or a preacher who isn't the best communicator in the world than an arrogant or prideful one. The humble ones may not have all the clever and pithy sayings, you know, those one-liners that we can share on Instagram. But what comes from the heart is, is I'm hoping it's the heart of Jesus, and that's why they're the ones that I want to hear. The heart matters to God first and foremost. If you're struggling with pride or humility is lacking, you can't just read a book and change. Dealing with pride is a matter of deep repentance. It's actually a conviction from the Holy Spirit, and that's where you have to start. You know, if you're identifying there's a little bit of pride in me, and we all do, we actually have to start with the Holy Spirit. It's like, dear Lord, convict me of that because it needs to be cut out of me. In Moses, God found a humble servant. So reluctantly, Moses says yes, and God provides his brother Aaron to be his right-hand man, which was nice of him. So he begins to travel back to Egypt, and, he, and the confrontation with Pharaoh begins. Exodus 5, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and he said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And so the back and forth begins. God demonstrates his power. Pharaoh resists, so he sends plague after plague. And Pharaoh still digs in. Talk about humble versus pride. Number three this morning, my point is this. Earthly empires are no match for God. One thing I learned this week when I was looking into this story is that each individual plague actually put one of the Egyptian gods into the crosshairs. I, yeah, I should have known that beforehand, but I didn't know this. God was destroying the very foundations of Egyptian power and rule. In fact, each plague kind of mocked their gods, one at a time. For example, Isis was the god of the Nile, not the Isis we think of, not Islamic State, the god, goddess Isis of the Nile. So God turned the Nile to blood. Haget was the goddess of birth and had a, a, a frog head. God sends a plague of frogs. Set was the god of the desert. God sends a plague of gnats. Yukit was represented by a fly. God sends a plague of flies. I don't know if I'm getting the names pronounced right, but Hathor was the goddess with a cow head. God sends a plague that kills all of the Egyptian livestock. Skeet is the goddess of disease. God sends a plague of boils. Newt was the god of storms. God sends a plague of destructive hail. Osiris was the god of crops and fertility. God sends a plague of locusts and devour, that devours everything in their path. Ray was a sun god. God sent darkness for three days. Pharaoh, and by extension his son, was considered to be a god of sorts in their own right. God brings death to the firstborn including Pharaoh's son. You know, world leaders might sometimes think or act like gods, but Exodus reminds us they're no match for God. In the end, nothing can stop God's plan of redemption. And, and I want you to hear that today. Nothing can stop God's plan of redemption. I'm sure as the Hebrews waited hundreds of years under brutal control, maybe they felt like God was missing. But he wasn't. He was still working. His plans can't be stopped. The powerful people of this world probably think they can stop him, but ultimately they can't and they won't. So we get to the final plague, this 
several chapters on this because this is a very significant moment. What is about to happen will finally free the Israelites from captivity, but it's, it's deeper than that. Point four this morning is that, because we're going to get to the Passover story now, the Passover provides a clear picture of salvation for Israel and it points ahead to the salvation for us through Christ. Remember when Pastor Mark was talking about how um, Isaac was led by Abraham that was going to, God said you should put him on the altar and, and he would be the sacrifice. And it didn't let him go through it, with it, but it was in the same place that Jesus was going to do the same thing thousands of years later. A lot of this stuff points to what is going to happen. A lot of this stuff points to Jesus, what was happening through the Old Testament. It's God's redemption plan. So God tells Moses that the Israelites are to take a sacrificial lamb. It's got to be a perfect one, so no blemish. And that each house is to kill the lamb at dusk, and they're to put some of the blood of the lamb on the sides and the top of their door frames, and they had to eat the lamb that night. This is the last plague I'm talking about if I've lost you. Is everybody with me? Yeah. Good. Shelley's nodding. That's good. Here's what it says in Exodus 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt. This is God speaking. And I'll strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on their houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. A sacrificial lamb is given as an atonement for the nation of Israel, pre-configuring Christ's sacrifice on the cross for the people who will believe in Jesus, who will believe in God. In both instances, the Passover and the cross I'm talking about here, in both instances there's a sacrifice, albeit the the later one is perfect and final. In both instances, there's a, there's a deliverance from bondage. In both instances, God's power overcomes the power of evil. In both instances, there's a new promised life for us to move into, to overcome, and to take hold of one bit, of, uh, one bit at a time with God's help. In both instances, people are saved by the sacrificial blood of the perfect lamb. In both instances, we symbolically eat the body of that sacrifice. In both instances, God's covenant promises realize his plan for redemption comes to pass. This is why the Passover celebration was celebrated annually by the Hebrews and the Lord's Supper is celebrated regularly by us. Never to forget, God delivers. Never to forget our salvation. Anyway, the last plague has the desired effect. Pharaoh gives in and lets the Israelites go. So in Exodus 12, it says, During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. He said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. And also bless me. Interesting, that last little bit, isn't it? And also bless me. Chapter 4 concludes with the famous great escape. The Hebrews are free and they leave Egypt only for Pharaoh to change his mind again and go after them with his army. And this is the famous story. They catch up to him at the Red Sea and Israel finds themselves trapped between the sea and the army coming their way. The sea is like a, a, a narrow a strip from the Red Sea that divides Africa and, and what is modern day Saudi Arabia. And of course, the people panic. 
in Exodus 14, verse 13, Moses answered the people, Don't be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. And as you know, God delivers them. The sea opens up. They cross over on on dry ground. The Egyptians follow them in. The sea closes over. The Israelites are now free once and for all from the slave masters. They can't control them again. Before the Red Sea, there was always that fear. What if they come and get us? What if we have to go back? Now they can't. They're defeated. The sacrifice of Christ for you was final. It was once and for all. The forgiveness you received for your sin is all-powerful. The grace God gives you is sufficient. The devil and sin was dealt a mortal blow. It is done. It is finished. Christ conquered death and rose again. So why do we live like the Egyptians are about to overtake us? They're not. God finished them off so we don't have to live in fear anymore, if you know what I mean. God did the work on the cross. He defeated the sin and death. We don't have to fear death anymore. So we should live our life like that. I'm not saying that your life is going to be easy. I am saying God has won. We've got to stop looking back. We've got to dial down that fear. We're in God's hands. What did Moses say right at the end again? The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. But don't I need to do all of these things? You need only be still. In other words, be in his hands. Sit in his hands. The team's going to come up. And as we did last week, we'll just take a moment. I know it's noisy on the roof, but we'll just have some silence here in the auditorium. And if you're watching at home, I want to encourage you. Just wait a minute before you go. Let's just, let's be still. So, Lord, this morning we 
you know, even as the rain falls outside, I just ask that you would, Holy Spirit, you would shower down on us as well. And whatever it is that's gripping us and giving us fear right now, Father, we give it over to you. We know that you're in control. We, we're seeing devastation around us, Father. But we, just, we still need to take a moment, even now, just to be still. We know you are here.